Let's have a brief word of prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you for your love and mercy, your goodness and kindness. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you that you've made clear those things that are pleasing to you. We pray that you would give us wisdom with respect to what we read in James chapter 3 this morning. Pray that in your name, amen. We started our study of James on the last Sunday of August. That's August the 28th. We've now made our way to chapter 3. We're flying through the way Presbyterians normally do. And we're turning to what may be everyone's least favorite section of the epistle. That's what the ESV editors called taming the tongue. Here's the passage. James chapter 3 starting at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Pretty convicting, isn't it? Now let me just candidly ask, does anybody know someone who has this problem? Show of hands. All right, here's the homework assignment. Take them a copy of what we've just read and tell them you think they need to deal with their problem. And then we'll come visit you in the hospital. <laughs> to see exactly how important this passage is in the lives of every believer. Let's look at it for a few minutes first this morning by noticing where it stands in the flow of the book. It, we have to read chapter 3 in the context of what we read before. And as Tim explained incredibly well last week, James had warned the readers in the latter part of chapter 2 that faith without works is dead faith. Now does that mean that we earn our salvation by doing some work that is in addition to what Christ did on the cross. Well, we know that does not happen. Tim gave us passage after passage that made that perfectly, absolutely, 100% clear. Just by way of reminder, here are two. Titus 3.5, 1 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but, remember the passage, according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10, for by grace were we saved through faith. That's not of ourselves, is it? It's a gift of God, lest any person should boast. And then it continues, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has ordained in advance for us as His people to walk in them. So here's the question, was James contradicting Paul in some way? And the answer is, it may seem like on the surface, but absolutely not. As Tim perfectly explained last time, James was basically saying this, that if we are genuinely saved, there will be some accompanying spiritual work of some description in the lives of every one of us. Do you all agree with that? Saved people engage in spiritual work for the sake of the kingdom. All are saved by grace, but the ensuing spiritual work is simply this. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom and we are transformed by the Holy Spirit that is in us. And exhibit A that demonstrates that we are His and will be saved and redeemed and taken up to Him forever is that there is a spiritual work in the heart of every one of us that knows the Lord. Everybody agree with that? Amen. What regenerates meaning the things that allows us to be the thing that allows us to be born again is faith in the work of Jesus Christ but with this slight footnote that we got from chapter 2 it will always be the case that genuine faith is a faith that works at some level unless of course Jesus declares that you be saved like the thief on the cross at the moment before you die the point is this, there's no way escape, we escape hell by saying we have faith in Jesus and then going out and acting like that's exactly where we're going. Everybody agree with that? Okay, good. So here's the important question. What exactly is the type of faith that will prove that we have something other than a dead faith? What qualifies as a work that demonstrates that we have a faith that is, is not a dead faith. Now that's an interesting question. It probably depends on whom you ask. For example, some in our day say that it must involve a social justice emphasis where you feed the hungry, fight racism, and you get people out to vote. And if you don't do that, then you're not much of a Christian. Others say it's got to be a mercy ministry focus where you operate a food pantry, a clothes closet, or a homeless shelter. It's good work. But does that demonstrate alone that we have a right relationship with the Lord? No. The traditionalist among us may say that it always involves foreign missions, evangelism programs, and maybe even church planting. But a very good question is this. What would James say is the kind of work that enables us to avoid the faith without works is dead assessment? Which is a pretty interesting question. What would James say about that subject? Is it required that we do something as in some activity of some description or is it also a qualifying work if it's something that we are? Well, that's an interesting question. And the answer is it's both. It, is it a qualifying work if we, for example, put type reins on our tongues, which now, of course, takes us into chapter 3. 
Does that avoid the faith without works problem? And of course, based on what we just read, the answer to that is absolutely, given what James says here in these 12 verses in chapter 3, but also something he had to say back in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. You may want to turn there just for a moment. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it is an absolute cross-reference to where we are this morning. There James says this, if anyone thinks that he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now what's happening here is you read it carefully. James is putting, controlling our tongues, evidencing an internal exercise of self-control. He's putting the control of our, of our tongues on par with visiting orphans and widows, which is an external act of mercy. So does that mean that tongue control, which is something we are as maturing people of faith, is that a work that qualifies under James' faith without works formula? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. When we control our tongues, which is as difficult as can be, what it means is we are people who are redeemed. And get this, the section of chapter 1 where James first introduces these statements about the tongue is in the, that part of the chapter that encourages believers to be doers of the word and not just hearers. So we have to ask ourselves this question. What's the condition of our tongues? Is the content of our speech, is the manner and tone in which we communicate, is that a sweet aroma to the Lord? Well, that's a tough question. And I would dare say that for most of us, it's not always the case that that is true. And James actually turns the spotlight on every reader to get us to look and see what's going on inside. This is not for external observation purposes necessarily, though those around us who hear us speak may sometimes candidly tell us that there's something going on inside. But this chapter, these 12 verses are for us to look inside because everything that comes out here is an evidence of what's going on in our hearts. In fact, another interesting cross-reference is Mark chapter 7 verses 14 and 15, on this exact subject where the Lord says this, or Mark says, quoting the Lord, He called the people to Him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In fact, let's continue starting in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then there's a parenthetical by Mark. Thus he declared all foods clean. But then he continues, verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For with him, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
all these evil things come within, from within and they defile a person. In other words, what's happening as we consider all this in context, these words prove that the measure of how our faith works has a whole lot to do with both what we are and how we speak and how we act and what we watch. A life that has self-control in those areas is proof that we have faith that's working. Everybody agree with that thought? Sure. Is that a hard standard? You bet. Look at what James says at the beginning of the second paragraph. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I bet some of us have had conversations from time to time that can prove that is a true statement. But listen, thank God that all those forest fires we've set by our speech have been covered by the work of Jesus, the primary gospel fireman for all of us. And beyond that, the point of all this as we extend the thought through this is that believers have the power of the Holy Spirit that give us the internal ability to bridle our tongues. Now, James understood how hard it is for all of us, and that's why he takes us, actually, that's where he takes us in the verses that we have before us. Look again at verses 1 and 2. How many of you should become teachers, my brothers? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So the question is, which Christians among us are able to bridle our tongues? Which believers never have a single problem with bridling their tongues? And he answers his own question. That is, those among us who are perfect. Which, of course, James says, doesn't exist because he says just earlier that we all stumble in many ways. If he were alive in our day, that is, if James were here this morning conducting this lesson, he would probably say that unbridled tongues are an international but also internal pandemic. And it's from our house to the White House, as we observed this week with the microphone that unfortunately caught the words of the president. In other words, it is a global perpetual problem. Which is why he puts the spotlight on those who are in teaching positions, since it's inevitable that mistakes are made. I remember some time back during the COVID time when people were wearing masks, David happened to be preaching about hypocrisy, which means you are wearing a what? A mask. And at the end of the sermon, he said, now take off the mask, all of you. And all of those COVID-sensitive people said, is this a sin for me to wear a mask? Now, that's a funny, harmless, oops, and he didn't mean, of course, anything about that. But sometimes it is not harmless. Sometimes people can use power words that can really cause problems in relationships because of what happens with our tongues. You know what I'm talking about? Power words that sometimes in a quarrel people use the D word, the divorce word, word and things like that. 
Well, James talks about the problem. It gives us visual images about how difficult it is, and he does it in an interesting way. Verse 3, he talks about the bits in the mouth of a horse. That's an animal. I actually looked this up. Some of them weigh 2,000 pounds or more, and they're controlled with a small metal device in length just three or four or five inches at most, and maybe a few ounces in weight, and it controls the movement of the entire horse. A rudder, verse 4, directs a ship through winds and waves, all at the command of its captain. Just this, the whole ship moves. Verses 7 and 8, all kinds of animals are tamed by men. <laughs> Look at what he says. No human being can tame the tongue. Verses 10 and 11, springs of water never produce both fresh and salt water, but from the mouths of some come both blessing and cursing. Now, I don't know where we may be, each of us in this room, on that question, but let me just say this. Believers don't use four-letter words, period. I'm embarrassed to tell you that I may have mentioned this once before, but I grew up hearing it all the time. My dad was a Army guy, Air Force guy. We all know about Air Force people. <laughs> and I heard it my entire life. And parents know that if that goes on in your house, you can expect your children to emulate their parents. And so it was characteristic of me for a long time. And in 1973... In law school, I got invited to go to a small group Bible study, and for the first time in my life, I began to read the Bible for content, not just for stories. Prior to that, I bought you about whether or not Jesus walked on the water. From a physical standpoint, how that ever happened, but it's in the Bible. It says that I believe it. And that would be true of everything from Jonah walking on the whale to Jesus, Jonah being swallowed by the whale, to Jesus being raised from the dead. But principles never trickled down until that moment. And I realized fresh water and salt water don't come from the same pool. And I stopped. Believers don't use crude speech, period. Verses 9 and 12, the same kind of thought is there. Fig trees make figs, not olives, he says. Grapevines make grapes, not figs. And saltwater ponds are not filled with fresh water. And then he says, yet, and yet with our same mouths, we bless the Lord, but in the next breath, we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. I have a friend of mine, we regularly have lunch together. So he graduated in 1998 when I did. So we're both in our early 70s. And almost every time I'm with him, there are four-letter words there. And where I regularly spend time with him is at our midweek Bible study. With our mouths, we bless the Lord, but in the next breath, we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. That's not necessarily four-letter words. It's cursing and talk about evil speech about others. And if that's not enough, look at verse 6. The tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. It's set among our members, and it stains the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. 
In fact, to make matters even worse, uh, Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus made this extraordinarily, awfully scary declaration. It's Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I'll tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you will be condemned. So here's what we have to ask ourselves. Is it time that I look inwardly at what I say and what I think and do something about it? Let me ask you this. Does God hear it all? Sure, He hears it all. Now we asked a bit ago what kind of works was James talking about when he said that faith without works is dead. Obviously putting a bridle on our tongues is one of them. Guarding our tongues is an evidence of a faith that is both alive and a faith that it works. It is evidence of a faith that works. And if we are to deal with the brute force and harsh reality of what we get in this chapter, it's time for us to harness a power that is not our own. Everybody get that? If we're going to deal with what we're confronted by in this passage, we need a power that is not our own. And let me just say this. As believers, do we have that power? The answer is absolutely we have that power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit alive in us. Everybody agree with that? So here's the question. What's my problem? <laughs> Please don't tell me what my problem is. What's our problem? How am I... How are we to bridle our tongues and the attitudes that cause that stuff to spew out? Well, sometime back I went looking for some practical advice about when we should be especially careful, and here are some illustrations about that. You won't be able to jot all these down, but I can make them available. When we're mad and in the heat of anger. That's number one. That's obvious. Number two, when you don't have all the facts. So easy to be... And by, and by this, by this whole chapter three, let me just be real clear. We're not talking about bad speech with people we know. We're talking about people we don't know. And sometimes we make statements about how unrealistic people are being because we don't know all the facts. So we need to be guarded in our speech when we don't know all the facts. Next, when we haven't gotten the truth about a story. Next, if our words will offend somebody that's weaker. If our words will be a poor reflection on the Lord. And let me just say this. What would you say if, if you heard a very committed Christian use a four-letter word or tell a dirty joke? Well, if somebody is observing that Christian's life and wondering, wow, that person is transformed, at that point they'll say, or is he or she really transformed by the Holy Spirit, if that's going on. Next is when we're tempted to tell a joke that is off color. Next, when we'll be ashamed of our words later on. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. 
Anybody ever said that in this room? Next, when we're tempted to make light of holy things, if the issue is no, if the issue is none of our business, when we're tempted to tell an outright lie, if our words will damage somebody's reputation. Oh, by the way, did I tell you about? And all of a sudden, you're thinking, "What are you going to tell me? Why is it that our Something in us, in the corrupt nature of us, really wants to hear something juicy. If somebody tells you, can I tell you about, and have that look on their face, say, please don't tell me. That will shock their pants off. If our words can negatively impact a friendship, when we're in a bad frame of mind and are feeling critical and judgmental, when you're in a bad frame of mind, you didn't get enough to eat, you did not get enough sleep, and you're just in one of those moods, just don't say anything. If we can't speak without yelling, when it's time to listen and not to talk, if we're sure we're going to have to eat our words later, and that typically happens when we violate it all, of the 15 previous illustrations that I've just given. And if my speaking, all we're doing is retaliating. Oh, yeah, well. Now, there are probably more, but these are simple, reasonably good suggestions I happen to find online. But the question from a bit earlier was not, when should we bridle our tongues, but what's my problem that I have a problem doing that? Now, here's the reality. We know we have the Holy Spirit. From the moment of our salvation, we are granted the Holy Spirit in us, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Everybody agree with that concept? We can do all things. Now, here's the problem. Even though He took up residence in our hearts when we got saved... Well, first, does that mean we have the power to bridle our tongues to deal with all those things we've been saying for the last 20 minutes? Yes or no? Do we have the power? Yes. Well, the problem is that even though the Holy Spirit enters the hearts of believers, the Holy Spirit in us has a roommate. <laughs> and the roommate is our flesh. It is our old natures. Remember that movie, The Odd Couple? Well, they are the odd couple. It's the spirit within us and the flesh against which it wars. And let me tell you, one of those keeps a really messy room. <laughs> and that's the flesh. Here's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Amen. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Wow. So when you're watching TV and you see something that you know is wrong, the Spirit says no, but the flesh says yes. And one of those will win at that moment. Do we have the power to say no to that thing? The answer is yes. 
Absolutely. Now, it may make sense to do like that movie from years ago called Fireproof, when the guy had the problem with watching things that were inappropriate for him to see. It was a computer. You remember the saying what he did? He took his computer in the presence of a neighbor, and he went outside, and he beat the computer to death. <laughs> It's a battle. Everybody knows it's a battle. It's something like that forest fire that James talks about here in the first portion of this chapter. So if we are to solve the problem of an untamed tongue, then by the power of the Spirit, you just got to do this. You got to roll up your sleeves and make it a priority. I am just not going to be defeated by this anymore. Period. Here's what... Paul said in Romans 6, 11 through 14, listen really carefully. It's Romans chapter 6. This is good to memorize, by the way. Verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now listen, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin, meaning in this case your tongues. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So the greatest motivator for life change is not what we just read. It's not law. It is grace that will transform us. It's the only effective means to control the tongue. It is the grace of God because He died for us because of our tongues. In other words, here's what's got to happen. We've got to be warriors against the enemy that lies within, that controls us with respect to this issue. All of us face it at different levels, don't we? Everybody in this room, if there's this scale, it would be different for all of us. Some have better success in this area than others, but we have to be warriors against every little drop of it, wherever it may exist in my life or yours. So let me ask you this. Would you do that? Would you commit today to do that in your life? That's the question. We don't generally bear down that way in this church. But let me ask you, would you do that? Would you resolve in your life to say, I'm done? <laughs> I always feel guilty when I say those things. I regret it later. Would you say, that's it? By the power of the Holy Spirit, I am not going to fuss at my parents the way I had done that. Now, that's purely hypothetical in this room, I understand. Or I'm not going to speak to my spouse that way. That's also hypothetical. Interestingly, Paul gives us a bit of a battle strategy. Listen to Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. Here's what he says. And by the way, let me just stop for a moment and say this. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. We read these things over and over and over again. Like what I'm about to read. This is Paul's 
strategy for being engaged in a battle like this. These are inspired words from the Holy Spirit that can give us real authority over the sin, the flesh, and the devil. So here's what he says, verse 10, Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. You know this. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We've been saying that for 15 minutes. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, what does Paul say? Put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand our ground and after having done everything to stand. So let me ask you this. Is Paul suggesting that the bridling of our tongues rises to the level of being a battle against the spiritual forces of, even, of evil in the heavenly realms. Is he equating those two, yes or no? That's exactly what he's doing. And we may think it's so insignificant that I'm gossiping about somebody and calling them that they're stupid. It's a manifestation in part of the very struggle that he says we need to address. <clears throat> and that's why it's so hard, because we've opened the door. I mean, we're Presbyterians. We only open the door to Satan a little bit. But he's walked right in, and he's occupied that little space in your thinking and in my thinking. And it's time for us to just... Do like the guy with the baseball bat and the computer. Kick him out the door. So here's what we know. Because of God's grace and mercy, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to clean up our language, to stop telling half-truths, to quit saying negative things about other people, and to kill anger and bitterness, and to let our speech always be gracious. This is Colossians 4, 6. Let our Language be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. Amen. God help us. So we have 50 minutes and 4 seconds for confession time. <laughs> it's too bad we don't have an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> Anybody want to make a comment? Colossians 4, 6. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, this is tough. It applies to every one of us in this room at varying levels. We all want to skip chapter 3. We like chapter 2 because we know faith without works is dead, but then we get, we get to this place where we know we're not saved by work, but we had no idea that coiling our, controlling our tongues would somehow or another relate back to chapter 2, and it does. It is a work that pleases you when we as your people have speech that is seasoned with salt. Lord, I personally confess that I am guilty of this. I suspect that some in this room are as well.
And so for myself and all of us in this room, we resolve to do better and to come to the place where we put this behind us once and for all. It will make our relationships with parents and children better. It will make our relationships in our homes as husbands and wives better. We will communicate better with employers or employees. It will be better when we're speaking to somebody else and a third party overhears our speech and thinks something like, oh, I thought you were a churchgoer, a Christian. I don't see that. We thank you, Lord, that the Scripture is a double-edged sword. And we believe that you've done surgery in us this morning by virtue of this text. And we pray that we would be children whose speech is a sweet aroma to you, knowing this, that on those occasions when from this point forward this morning that our tongues are bridled, the angels in heaven are rejoicing because each one of us will have personally moved a bit ahead in the process of sanctification. One other thought, O oh Lord, we recognize if there's a person here this morning who is not convicted by this truth, not convicted to the sense that they realize that having to account to you at the final day is not a big deal. That means that person is not saved. I doubt that about anybody in this room. Unsaved people don't worry about this. And if it should be the case that some of us are not particularly worried about this, then I pray for the salvation of that person, that he or she would come to the place of knowing that it's not by might nor by the flesh, but by your spirit, not our power, but yours that redeems us. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.